Welcome to One Life Online. The podcast that brings you the weekly sermons at One Life Church, Kampala. In this episode, we listen to a sermon from Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, titled, The Heart is the Issue, presented by Martin Muchoki. As you listen to this message, may the Lord speak to you through His Word, by His Spirit, and cause you to walk according to His will, by His grace. Where did we stop last time? We stopped at the end of John chapter 6, where from that time many of the people stopped following Jesus. Yeah, that was it. And they stopped following Him because Jesus said that no one can come to me unless my Father draws him. No one can come to me unless that person was sent to me by the Father. From that time, many of the disciples stopped following Jesus and they turned away from him. And these were, as we saw, fake and false disciples. Jesus wanted to categorically distinguish his genuine disciples from those who were just following him because of the bread that he had provided. And after that, of course, he told the disciples, after that amazing confession by Peter, that have I not chosen you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. Um, they must have been shocked at that time. Everyone must have been looking at the other and wondering who among us would really betray the master. So after that, the Pharisees and certain of the scribes came from Jerusalem. Now, these scribes had followed Jesus for very far, for a very long distance, approximately 150 kilometers. When we began the life of Christ, we saw that the country of Israel can be simply divided into three, the regions at least. You have the, the southern region called Judea, and the central region, which is Samaria, and the northern region, which is Galilee. Because of the increasing hostility between Jesus and the religious teachers and re- leaders of the day, Jesus stopped walking in Jerusalem, in Judea. He left, and instead of establishing his ministry headquarters in Jerusalem, he went and established his ministry headquarters in Capernaum. That's why he did a lot of miracles and a lot of works and a lot of teaching. So he doesn't want at that time to bring issues between him and the religious teachers of his day because his time had not yet come. But here we are in Mark chapter 7. They have followed him all the way from Jerusalem, maybe at the invitation of the Pharisees who are in Galilee. Whatever the case, they had followed him all the way there. And they are coming to them. It's not because they want salvation. We know that because in verse 2, when they saw that some of the disciples were eating bread with hands that were not washed, they were upset. They were not upset because it was unhygienic, because they would get sick. They were upset because the verse tells us they did not follow the tradition of the elders. In verse 2 we read that when they saw the disciples eating with unwashed hands, they found fault. They found fault because they were looking for the fault. And the problem that they had really concerned ritual purity, or as was read in the other version, ritual washing, which is closely connected with the Jewish understanding of holiness, that outward cleanliness leads to inward holiness. And this is not correct, which Jesus clearly corrects. 
Some of you may remember if you went to some kind of a primary school or secondary school, or maybe not, maybe you've heard the proverb that cleanliness is next to godliness. So my primary school teachers ensured that I had short nails and kempt hair, and I would tuck in my shirt, and, uh, and, and my shoes were brushed, and my clothes were clean, and the thing that they would tell us always in the assembly in the morning is that, Martin, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. And sometimes when you hear it, you, you think outward cleanliness, how can that be next to being godly? It's a good proverb, it's a good saying, and they were referring to the outward cleanliness by using a proverb that talks about holiness, that the person who is inwardly holy is near to God. Here are the religious leaders of the day finding fault because the disciples of Jesus were eating bread with hands that had not been washed. For the Pharisees, we are told in verse 3, and all the Jews, except they wash their hands, they do not eat bread when they come from marketplaces. Marketplaces were ritually unclean and contaminated. That's how the religious teachers of Jesus' day saw it. Unless, of course, they were receiving praises from people. Remember when you looked at Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 7, that famous sermon of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the scribes because they love to get praises of people. Where? Everywhere, including marketplaces. So they go to the same place that they say is ritually contaminated and it is dirty. As long as they are receiving praise from there, they have no issue. This is the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus condemns. Jesus, however, went everywhere. In fact, if you just go one verse before Mark chapter 7, verse 1, you will see that Jesus was in the marketplaces. He went, he preached, he taught, he explained the word, he healed, he visited everywhere. Now, the question is, question, is washing hands not hygienic? What do you think? Is washing hands not hygienic? You have to say yes, especially having come from this entire pandemic period. Does it not lead to avoiding many diseases? And you say yes, yes it does. But for the Pharisees, cleaning hands was not for removing germs and removing viruses, but it was merely a ritual rinsing of your fingers, of your, of your wrist, of your palm. As long as that was ritually washed in some steps that they had to follow, then the person was considered inwardly clean. Why do I say that? If you look at the word that is used in verse 3, the word except they wash, that word has the idea of sprinkle. If you look at the idea used in verse, at the end of verse 4, when we are told about washing of cups and pots, that washing there has the idea of baptize. As if you take a cup and you simply dip it in water and then you remove it out of the water. Do you know why Jesus finds fault with what they are saying? Some people wonder, why is Jesus being too hard on them? You should clean your hands before you eat a good meal. I'd like to demonstrate how they washed their hands. This is why this is here. Some of you are wondering why this is here. So I need a volunteer. Mugabe, come. This is how they would wash their hands. Please take this jug of water and sprinkle it on my hands and fingers in a careful way. See? Okay. So they would start, continue. So they would, uh, they would start 
by washing the upper parts of their hands, the fingers, then they would let the water drip all the way to their wrists, then they would turn their hands like this, then they would do like this, and the hands were clean. So there was step one. As long as the water, thank you very much, Mugabe. Yes, I need this. But I feel like I haven't finished my demonstration. But you can have a seat, thank you. As long as the water dripped from the top of your fingers all the way to the beginning of, to the end of your wrists, and then it, it was done that on the other side of your, of, your, of, your, of your arm, then you are clean. That was it, that's all that you needed. Now, during the COVID pandemic period, they taught people how to wash hands, isn't it? Uh, there were all these 20 seconds of hand washing, this side and the other side, and your fingers, and so on and so forth. But the, the, the cleaning that the Pharisees did was something like that. Just a bit of sprinkling of water, and that was done. No wonder Jesus tells them in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 25 that warned to use scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, a word he keeps using over and over again to refer to them. For you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within you are full of extortion and excess. They're just thinking of outward cleanliness. So the Pharisees and scribes look at Jesus and they ask him, Hey, Jesus, why do your disciples not wash their hands before they eat bread? Everyone else washes their hands, and they wash their hands according to the tradition of the elders. They don't wash their hands like they want to wash their hands or like they have decided to wash their hands. There is a particular way that they are required to wash their hands. If they don't do that, then they are defiled. They are ritually unclean. They are ceremonially impure. And this impurity, of course, did not result from eating bread with hands that were not washed, but not cleaning in the manner that was dictated by the tradition of the elders. The options were either tradition or defilement. It was either tradition or uncleanliness. There was no other option. So Jesus answered and said to them, well did Isaiah the prophet prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written in verse 6. These people honor me with their lips. Matthew uses these people honor me with their mouth because Matthew also has this account in Matthew chapter 15. But their heart is far from me. Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13 in his response to the Pharisees and to the experts of the law. Isaiah 29 was a condemnation on Israel for acting as if they were obeying God in their worship while in reality they were pursuing their own interests. No wonder Jesus calls these religious teachers of his day a strong word, hypocrites. They are behaving just as the idolatrous and unfaithful people in the days of Isaiah. How would you feel if someone came up to you and called you a hypocrite? You would be up in arms against them, isn't it? You would hold them by the lapels. You would pin them to the wall. How dare you call me this? What does this mean, hypocrite? The word is taken from the idea of the Greek theaters of someone wearing a mask. Basically, someone pretending to be someone who they are not. At the center of hypocrisy is a disparity between what someone says and what is truly in their heart. Isn't it? You say one thing, but what is in your heart is, is something else. You ask someone, are you feeling okay? Yes. Are you not feeling okay? No. What is in their heart is not what is coming through their mouth. And the heart is therefore the issue. This is why I termed my sermon, the heart is the issue. 
The issue is not a sanitation issue, a hygiene issue, a germs issue, a cleanliness issue. No. Jesus tells them that they are looking in the wrong place. If you want to know who the problem is or where the problem is, he tells the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, just get a mirror. And the reflection that is on that mirror is where the problem is. And he tells them about doctrine in verse 7. He says, in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men. What does doctrine mean? You've probably heard of this word doctrine. Does it refer to a doctorate that someone receives when they go to school? Does it refer to a doctor? It has that kind of an idea. But in simple terms, it means teaching. In this case, teaching of the word of God, also known in our text as the commandments of God or the precepts of God. You know, some people today like to fight doctrines of the Bible. They say, no, don't tell me about doctrines. I don't want to hear doctrines. I don't want indoctrination. But let me tell you, first of all, the world is already indoctrinating you and your children in so many ways. Secular courses have doctrines. The Bible is full of teaching of doctrine. Without doctrine, you cannot convincingly defend the Christian faith. How will you explain it to someone who doesn't know it, to someone who is fighting against it? You cannot explain the backbone of Christianity without doctrines. What better way to prepare children for the world than by teaching them the facts and the truth about the scriptures? You know, children are just, they are passengers in a vehicle. In a short time, they'll be gone. My daughters are getting to their teenage years and I'm just counting a few years and they'll be gone. I'm wondering, where did the years go? Did I impart in them everything I needed to impart them? They are soon going to be adults and they are going to leave me. Maybe in within a decade, they are going to be telling me, Dad, I want to get married. And I'll be very happy when they say that, because I'm looking forward to it. What better way to prepare children for the world than by teaching them the facts and truths about the scripture? This is the most effective way to prepare their minds to tackle the indoctrination they will find in society. Jesus also connects proper worship with proper doctrine. Did you see that? And he says that proper worship results from proper understanding of doctrine. Someone said that a high theology, a high knowledge of God, a high understanding of God leads to high doxology. The higher you know God, the deeper you go with God, the greater your praise becomes, your worship becomes, your adoration becomes, and how all in all you stand of God. That is, after all, what Jesus told the woman at the well. You cannot worship who you don't know. We worship who we know. So here, in our text, Jesus gives the distinction between two things, between vain worship or wrong worship and true worship. Wrong worship is where people teach us doctrines, as truth, the precepts of people, and true worship is where one teaches us doctrines, the truth, and the precepts of God. But his accusation of the Pharisees and the experts of the law doesn't stop there. Because in verse 7, verse 8 and verse 9, he tells them about tradition. About tradition of the elders. Another question, what is tradition? Tradition is something that someone has been used to do over and over and over again. When Chris Howells preached the sermon on Easter, he started by talking about the traditions which people observe during Easter. There is something you've probably done in your family or with your friends. For many years, it becomes a routine, a tradition. 
So the religious teachers on Jesus's, in Jesus' um, day believed that on top of the law that God gave to Moses, the Torah, God also gave to Moses an exact interpretation. Not only that, even an exact application of each of those sets of laws. God told Moses, this is exactly what this particular law means. But since God told Moses in an oral manner, Moses handed it, transferred it to the next generation in an oral manner, and then those teachers taught other students who in time became teachers and taught others in an oral manner. So this oral interpretation was carried over from one generation to the next, from one teacher to the other. If you've read Galatians chapter 1 and verse 14, you, you can hear Paul, for example, talking about this, where he says that I profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous in the traditions of my fathers. Traditions, not the scriptures. Traditions, not the Torah. Traditions, not Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Judges, Joshua, Ruth, and all those other books of the Old Testament. Traditions. Things that we regularly do on a very regular basis, but which we never stop to think, why actually do we do this? Do you have things like those in your own life? For example, if you're looking to buy a car, everyone will tell you you buy. Which make? A Toyota. And you ask, why a Toyota? Uh, because, can't you see, there are Toyotas everywhere. Just buy a Toyota. Everyone buys a Toyota. If you buy another vehicle, everyone thinks, oh, 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 you're not going to survive in this Uganda. It's not going to be possible. But if you ask why, nobody explains. If you look at people when they are voting, people vote by tribe. I want to vote the person who belongs to my tribe. You ask, why are you voting for that person? And you've voted for them so many times. Uh, because that's, yeah, why are you not voting for the other tribe? Because tradition, tradition. Why do you have tea for breakfast? Or um, katogo for breakfast? Why not wake up in the morning and cook chapati and, uh, and beans and uh, an entire full meal and have it for breakfast? Ever thought about it? Why do you wear the gomesi, you know, or the kitenge? Or why do you wear a suit when you're going to certain places? If you've ever visited a supermarket in Kampala, there's always someone paid who is at the exit, who is just waiting to mark your ticket using either the nail on their finger like this, or with a pen. Uh, for the life of me, I can never figure out why they do it. I have tried with my wife asking, why do you... This is a waste of resources and money, and they say, why do you do it? They don't give a credible reason. One of them told me it's because I want to confirm the things that you have bought, but you have not checked any of the items. You've just taken my, my receipt and you've just ticked it. Right? Tradition. Things that are just done and they are done and someone opens a supermarket and they have to hire someone to be at the exit. And they don't think, why is that someone at the exit? But it's always done in every supermarket, right? Tradition. Very strong. So what are you saying, Martin? Should we abandon our traditions? Absolutely not. That is not what I am saying. Unless they contradict 
the word of God. Where they part from the word of God is where we part with the traditions. Where they abandon the word of God is where we abandon the traditions. It is only those traditions which neglect his word because the word of God is where the authority is which we abandon. So the Pharisees and the scribes, however, these verses tell us, had in four ways annulled the word of God. They taught us biblical doctrines, the precepts of people. They abandoned the commandment of God and they embraced traditions. They transgressed the commandment of God by tradition. And they are experts. They have a fine way of rejecting God's commandments in order to establish their own traditions. Jesus will give a suitable example for them in their hearing. But you know what I always think about when I think about traditions? There was this man who prepared an empty room, a room maybe the size of this stage over here. And then he hung bogoya, sweet bananas, bananas, cavendish, on the ceiling. And then he came with a ladder and put the ladder in the room. And then he left and then he came with 10 monkeys. And he put the monkeys inside the room. What is the first thing the monkeys did? Climb up the radar to go and get the bananas. That's what a monkey would do. So when they started to climb up the ladder, the man would shock them. So shock would be introduced, some kind of an electric shock. So the monkeys would immediately go back to the floor because who wants to be shocked? You're going to die, it's a natural reaction, another natural reaction. You just go and run away from that particular shock. So the monkeys kept doing this over and over again because they want the bananas until at some point in time they got the point. <laughs> if you try to get the bananas, you are going to be electrocuted. So the man then came and removed three of these monkeys and inserted three new monkeys. So when he inserted the three new monkeys, the seven older monkeys, the three new monkeys, immediately what they did is climb up the ladder to get these bananas. They are asking these seven monkeys, what is wrong with you? Can't you see bananas over there? And these seven monkeys beat them down and harassed them and ensured they could not touch that ladder because anyone who touches the ladder is electrocuted. There is danger. The monkeys tried to climb up the ladder, but they couldn't. They were beaten down. So finally they got the point. And the man removed three more monkeys and then put three new monkeys. And the cycle continued until he was left with the four. And then he removed all these four and put four new monkeys so that now you have a new set of how many? Of ten. These ten monkeys kept beating each other up, but no one would explain why we can't get the bananas. Some of the older people know if you try to get the bananas, you're going to be electrocuted. But they don't explain. You just beat the new guys that come and you beat them down. So what happens with tradition. Things that people just do. They don't know why we can't go and get the bananas. Nobody has explained that to us. So the condemnation that Jesus gives to the teachers of his day in verse 10 to verse 12 was that they had taken their traditions. If, if, say, I don't know, if, say, this, imagine I'm holding something imaginary here, and this represents tradition, and they had set it above the word of God. So to speak, they had taken the word of God, put it on the ground, stepped on it, and said, 
this is what people are to follow. So for example, in this issue of Korban that Jesus talks about, Korban simply means a sacrifice, a gift, an offering that is set apart only for God. It is given for the purposes of religion, for sacred purposes, and it can be used for no other purpose except that. Say, in our case, it would be the offerings that you give and the tithe that you give. You, you dedicate every month that you say, this is the amount of money that I will give to God. You give it, it is received here. Once it is received, it becomes God's money. Not your money, not my money, but God's money. Hence why we have accountability mechanisms and we try to be good stewards and we account for how we spend the money because it's not ours. It's been given, you have given it for sacred or religious purposes. It is Coban. But what the Pharisees did, they told and they encouraged people, hey, you can do this. If you don't want to take care of your parents because you are angry with them, because you disagreed with them, because you don't like them or for whatever reason, you can go and say, everything that I have is Coban. Everything that I have is given to God. It is dedicated to God. And therefore, I can't help my parents. But what does the fifth commandment say in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 16? Honor your father and your mother. We know it, this is the first commandment with a promise. And before someone stops me and says, no, Martin, this is the old law. No, 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 this was not done away with. These are the Ten Commandments. And you will find them in Ephesians chapter 6, for example. Verse 1 to verse 3. Children, obey your parents, for this is right in the Lord. We know it as the first commandment with a promise. And God even went further, for example, in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 9. And he said, whoever curses his father or his mother, that person shall die the death. So among the Jews, the weightiest commandment that governed human relations was this issue of honoring mother or father. But the religious teachers, the Pharisees and the scribes had said, you, you can say all your property is Coban, you don't need to take care of your father or your mother in any particular way because the things that you have are given to God. So what have they done? They have defiled, they have defied, they have abandoned, they have counseled, they have rejected, they have annulled the word of God, which goes above human traditions. And you know, God takes vows seriously. For example, in Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2, God says that if you vow a vow, if you swear an oath, you shall not break your word. You shall do according to everything that proceeds out of your mouth. But the Pharisees had allowed all manner of traditions to creep in. You know, I stand here today preaching. You sit down there listening. We go about our lives as Christians on the backdrop of the blood of people. Blood was shed so that we could have the Bible in our own hands, in our own language. Before the 16th century, many people had gone against the established norms of the day, which were traditions. And they had said, no, we need to hear the word of God. We need to hold the word of God. We need to have the word of God. So by God's providence, someone nailed some thesis on some wall in a church somewhere and invited a debate about those things which the traditions of that day were contradicting the scriptures. He didn't know what he would pack. But here we are, we call ourselves what? 
Protestants. Because we protested the abuses of people who are using traditions as the word of God. Traditions as authority. We say, no, the word of God is the final authority on all matters of faith and of practice. And we are grateful for those men. But for the Pharisees and the scribes, there are many such things, even more than dishonoring parents and more than utensils cleaning and ritual washing that were violating the scriptures. So Jesus stops there. He gives them those very hard words. And then he calls everyone. He calls all the people, the crowd, and he says, he says to them, listen to me. This is messianic authority. This is God speaking. Hearken unto me. Listen to me. He calls them and they come. And they listen. Just like in Matthew chapter 5, he told them, you have heard that it has been said, but I say unto you, but I, the word of God, say unto you. Nothing external that someone eats makes them impure, verse 15. Absence of holiness is not by eating bread with unwashed hands. That could make you sick, so please wash your hands. But absence of holiness is not by eating bread with unwashed hands. The heart is the issue, is what he tells them. It is the things which come out of you, not the things which go into you through your mouth. The enemy of holiness and righteousness is within you, is within me. It is not without, it is within. So if any man has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 16. I know, your version may not have verse 16. It goes from 15 to 17. Sorry, you're missing some word of God. I'm just kidding. But your version, I'm sure, doesn't have verse 16. Unless it's one of the about five versions which carry that verse. So Jesus tells them, if anyone has ears to hear, let that person hear. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles someone, but that which comes out of the mouth. So, his disciples came to him, and they told him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when you told them these things, that the issue is their heart? Do you know that they were offended? You know, how would you feel if someone came to you publicly and denounced you and called you out for a certain tradition that you do or follow or hold or have done for years, and you know it is factual? You know, something you're proud about. You would not feel good, not at all. Maybe that's why the Pharisees were offended. No. We know it because of what the verses tell us. They were offended because they knew the truth of God, but instead of teaching that to the people, they taught their own handed-down traditions. That is why they were upset. It's like when someone comes and tells you the truth in your heart or a truth in your heart or a deficiency that you have or something that you're struggling with that they don't know about but they just speak against it. Most people tend to be very, very defensive or offended. So the Pharisees knew, for example, that according to Exodus chapter 30, 
and verse 18 to verse 21. This washing they are talking about was only required of the priests. But they had required it of everyone. And they know this because they know their Torah, they know their scriptures, they are experts in the law, as Jonathan read. So the disciples are mindful of the Pharisees' view and what they have to say, but Jesus is not. Jesus knows that they are blind guides, not planted by the Father, leading people to destruction, not salvation by their legalistic traditions. So, things Jesus said. You know, there are some things people don't think Jesus said. Things Jesus said, let them be offended. That's what Jesus said. They have abandoned God, God has abandoned them as well. He has, so to speak, in the words of Romans chapter 1, given them over to the lusts of their heart. They have trampled underfoot in mud the word of God, which is not only God's self-revelation, but also God's means of salvation. And Jesus had no easy words for people who would offend others by prohibiting them from reading or knowing the scriptures. For example, in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 6 to verse 7, they said, it is better than that person where a large millstone were hung around their head and they were thrown into the depths of the seas. So Jesus is not moved by their taking offense. They had become like the dog in the manger. Do you know the dog in the manger, the proverbial dog in the manger? It hinders the, the goat, or is it the cow, from licking the salt. But the dog is not going to lick the salt. The dog is a carnival. It needs meat. But it will not allow the goat or the, the cow to lick the salt. But it will not lick the salt itself. So Jesus is not moved by their taking offense. Sometimes offense is inevitable. We should make every intention not to deliberately offend people. But in presenting the gospel, in presenting the word of God, offense just comes. The offense of the cross, the Bible tells us about. So, verse 17. When he entered into the house, his disciples came to ask him concerning this parable. And Peter asked him, of course it was Peter. Who else? Who else has been asking all the questions? It is always Peter who is first to ask. <laughs> You know, Peter was an incredible disciple. Unfortunately, people remember him for only two things, for, for doubting and for denying Jesus. It's very unfortunate. Yet he was the only one who was willing to step out of the boat and into the water. But as people think of Peter, that guy who sank, almost sank and was saved by Jesus. But Peter was never afraid of those around him. Peter was not fearful of being wrong in public. Peter was not shy from making mistakes in the process of following the master. Peter was bold to say, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come and I am going to come. He had that blind, ridiculous faith. Peter was prepared to answer that Jesus was the Messiah even when others did not. Peter was not ashamed to ask. Even questions that you assume that he should know. He was not afraid to ask. One of my best answers when people ask me difficult Bible questions is always, I don't know. I can look into it, but I don't know. Because I am not omnipotent, and if I don't know it, I don't know it. Why fake it? I don't know it. 
I don't have to be ashamed because I am a pastor or I went to Bible school or I read the Bible every day. If I don't, I don't. I don't have all knowledge. Peter here says, explain the parable to us. So Jesus explains the parable after he rebuked them. And he asked them, are you also very foolish? Are you not? Are you so without understanding? Don't you understand that whatever goes into the mouth goes to your stomach and then the process of the body takes effect, right? In the large intestines, then it is expelled. It is eliminated by the process of the body in those words that I don't want to use. And then there is a comment that Mark gives there in verse 19 where Jesus said, purging all meats. Likely, Mark, looking back at all of this, what does that mean, purging all meats? Thus he declared all foods clean. That is what it means. He not only erased the tradition of ceremonial cleanliness, but more importantly, the tradition relating to food laws. And you know, Peter was the influence behind Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. People ask, who is the apostolic authority in Mark? This Mark guy, wasn't he that guy who ran away from Paul and Barnabas in the middle of a mission to go and evangelize? Well, the apostolic authority is Peter. And this very, this very teaching about food laws was cemented to Peter in Acts chapter 10 when he was sent to go and see Cornelius. When he saw in a vision and God gave him food to eat and Peter said, no, I can't eat that which is unclean. And God says, don't call that which is unclean, clean. Just eat it. So if you like your shellfish and your crab and all manner of mollusks and if you like your, your whatever other weird foods people eat, eat them. Eat the, the, the crocodile meat and, uh, and enjoy it if you enjoy that. Jesus purged it. Jesus declared all foods to be cleaned unless, of course, they harm your body. And then Jesus finishes by saying in verse 20, that which comes out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and they defile the man. Where is the enemy? Without or within? Outside or inside? External or internal? The enemy is within. From the heart. The heart is the issue, brothers and sisters and other listeners. For verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed what? Evil thoughts, adultery, sexual immorality, which in your Bible it may be called fornication. The Greek word is pornea, from where we get the word pornography, which is extremely prevalent today. Murder, theft, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, which is again full in the internet and television. You'll hardly hear a movie without someone blaspheming the name of God, even a conversation in every day-to-day -day life, and someone says, I can't say it. <laughs> blasphemy, a serious sin before God. Pride, foolishness. Blasphemy is condemned in the fourth commandment. You shall not take the name of God in vain. But where does that come from? It comes from the heart, Jesus tells us. And someone Someone would like to point a finger at someone else and say, you know, it, it, was, it was my mother, it was my father, 
oh, it was my husband, it was my wife, it was my boss. They are the person who caused me to murder or to be adulterous or to have an evil eye or to be covetous. It is, it is that neighbor who comes with big cars that causes me to have covetousness. Jesus says that all these things come from within. Verse 23. Where do they come from? From within. From within. In um, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, we are told, put to death what is earthly. Where? In you. In you, the heart is the issue. So the finger should be pointed at me, not whoever I think is to blame. I am the enemy. I am my own enemy. And oftentimes, of course, we blame the wrong people. Like that boy who didn't go to school with his homework, and the teacher asked, where is your homework? And he said, oh, the dog. The dog ate my homework. Did the teacher give the homework to the boy or the dog? Yet, out of the heart. You know, the devil never forces anyone to do anything. He always entices and offers. I mean, Genesis chapter 3, it is... Has God said? Has God really said? Has God said? Did he force Eve and Adam? In Matthew chapter 4, he told Jesus, if you would like this, only do this. I will give you if. He doesn't make anyone do it. But he takes advantage of your sinful, fallen, weak human nature using the world and those who are in the world to tempt you on what is already in your heart and what is already in my heart. What I want to do already. So the enemy is right there within me, within you. The heart, brothers and sisters, is the issue. The heart is the thing that at most time defiles. Jeremiah said that in Jeremiah chapter 17. The heart is deceitful above all else and very wicked. Who can know it? Who can know it? We shall continue with this next Sunday and try to find a solution to that question. How we can help with these issues that are alive in us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word in Mark chapter 7. Continue to help us as we look at this life of Christ. Help us appreciate our Lord and our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to God's word today. Feel free to contact the pastor on phone at 0705 or send an email to pastor at onelifechurch.ug or follow us on Facebook at One Life Church and subscribe to our YouTube channel at One Life Church Kampala, Uganda. One Life Church is a multicultural community of believers equipped to serve Christ's mission.